Welcome to CTSI Science Cafe, a community engagement initiative of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. This program was recorded in front of our live community audience at St. Christopher's Episcopal Church in River Hills, Wisconsin. This recording is part of a special wellness series at St. Christopher's. This October 2019 event focuses on a presentation and community conversation titled Advancing Health Through Research and Faith. Our presentation began with some initial insight from Father Jeffrey Ward, Rector of St. Christopher's Episcopal Church. Thank you. I really appreciate everyone taking uh, part of their Saturday to join us. Today is really a general discussion about the intersect of faith and science and an exploration to kind of kick things off. And I thought I would just give you a brief history of how this even started. About a year and a half ago, I was invited to a research forum, happened to be on the opioid addiction. There were, I don't know, 150 people there. It was really well attended. And then I had a follow-up phone call saying, you know, um, Dr. Shakir would like to visit sometime. And so they came and we sat in my office and had a little coffee. We ended up talking for a couple hours. And one of uh, doctor's opening questions to me was to say, Father, am I, am I to understand that you really believe that faith and science are compatible? And my answer was yes. Not only are they compatible, but they are made for each other. And frankly, it's only in recent times that they have seen this chasm between them. Uh, historically, that has not really been the case. And the reason, uh, because you know, since I was talking to a scientist, I have to have a reason, right? I have to have, uh, I have to have reason behind what I said. Well, here's my reasoning. The reasoning is that if we look at our faith tradition, and frankly, any of the Abrahamic faith traditions, and we had a little conversation earlier about even some Eastern religions, if we look at the in our case, the story of creation, the first commandment that was given to mankind happens to be the same command that was given to the animals, and that was to be fruitful and multiply. Now, when we hear that, I think we hear the multiply part pretty easily, you know, and, and I think that um, even in that, we might misinterpret it a bit. The being fruitful, to me, is an invitation into the goodness of creation, because we believe that the creation was made to be not just good, but very good. And that when we, when we have a command to be fruitful and to multiply, I, I take that as an invitation to come into the creation and find the additional goodness, find the very goodness. And that's where the multiply also comes in. I think it's easy for us to think that multiply just means that we just make more of us. But I also happen to believe that it also means that we are a force multiplier of good. It changes things a bit when we think about it that way, doesn't it? And so we had this marvelous conversation um, and talked about how, uh, how this reflects in science. Because the invitation to come into the creation can be in a many, many varieties. That's why we've kind of coined a phrase here of being a place of worship, wellness, and wonder that we can seek out the goodness of creation through the arts, through theater, song, dance, but we certainly can do it through science as well. And so we, we talked about, uh, about this, and 
Now, I had to also kind of say, well, the flip side of the coin, though, is that when we have this beautiful invitation to come into the creation to find goodness, that there are a couple of things, warnings. And one is that we don't become God. Our effort to become God turns it into a different kind of journey. And the other is that we aren't creating monsters, if you will. Uh, we, if we are out to seek good, then we necessarily must want to co-create good from it so that good begets more good. And so this was really the basis of our conversation. Uh, and I've talked about it often since then. I, was, uh, I really enjoyed it. In fact, that was what kicked us into gear on this because the next thing I know, Dr. Garrison and I were starting to plan, hey, how can we get this message out there that faith and science can really work together? Next, we heard from Dr. Reza Shakir, Chief of the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology and Director of the Digestive Disease Center at Freitert and the Medical College of Wisconsin and Senior Associate Dean and Director of the CTSI. Good morning. Thank you, Reverend. I really appreciate your leadership in guiding us through very interesting path. So I'm a simple man, a simple scientist, and forget all those acronyms and titles and achievement. I'm just Reza, R-E-Z-A. And this humility helps us understand where we are, where is our position in the universe and in the creation. And as uh, Dr. Ward said, what will be our responsibility as long as we are on this earth? The way I look at who we are, where we are as humanity, I could divide our way of thinking into two kinds. One, sometime, or some of us, or sometime most of us, think about is, what it is, and we suffice to that. And we just agree to be what it is. I call them the Isians. I made up that word. It's not the English word. I made it up. So, and then there are other groups, or even the same group, sometime venture out and think what it could be. I call them the couldbeans. That is a little more difficult term. Now, if you look at faith and religion, Faith is never satisfied with what it is. It changes us to be better. And what does the science do? That is also the purpose of science, to discover the mysteries of nature and use it to make life, to make health better. So that is the common intercept between science and faith. And to us comes very natural. So I made some notes. And I hope I don't bother you, but I want to direct this towards the world of humanity as a whole. And we are seven billion earthlings on the face of planet Earth. And we have to think about all of them, it's not just us here. So I will ask you a question or make a statement, if you may. The way the health is in our nation and across the world, are we happy and satisfied with what we have? We have the best healthcare system in our country, but you step out of our boundaries in other parts of the world, people are really in difficult situation. Even in our own case, if you look, our approaches are slow, are expensive, and inadequate. We still suffer 
from recurrent disease. My grandfather died at age 55 of pneumococcal pneumonia. I never saw him. You know, his time of death was six months before penicillin was invented. Now just imagine, if there was a mechanism, there was a movement, there were some people who pushed the advent of penicillin a year earlier. My grandpa wouldn't have died at age 55. And I would have seen him. So they named me after him. And that always reminds me I never saw him. This is my paternal grandfather. So that's what I mean by advancing health, not to be satisfied with what we have. And as faith instructs us to be better every day, we have to also think that we can make the health better every day for the whole humanity. So that's point number one I want to make. Now, broadly speaking, the goal of biomedical and community research, more precisely, the goal of clinical and translational research is to improve health. Now, this is good, and also it has a little shortcoming. Because the entire responsibility of improving health has been placed on the shoulder of the biomedical research enterprise, then the rest of us have washed our hands and say that's their job. So I question that. Is that the right thing to do? Can a limited number of people deliver for seven billion humans? Or every one of those seven billion have some sort of responsibility? So if we look in regard to biomedical research or community-involved research, you could see two groups here. One, the group of investigators, very small compared to bigger group, and then community at large. How the community of researchers operate and function is well organized and controlled. There are things they can do, they can things they cannot do, there are ways we have to approach, that is well regulated. But we rarely discuss and have a conversation about the role of the rest of us. So I maintain that we need to have that discussion. Do each one of you have a responsibility in advancing health or not? And to extend that, do you have a right to it? Do humans have a right to have a better health? The same way that humans have a right to be better spiritually. That's why we have the faith. That's why we go to our place of worshipers. That's why we have our faith leaders. Why aren't we treating health the same way? Next point. Responsibility and right of the individual and community at large in advancing health through research discovery is a neglected topic. So I would like to discuss it today. Now, to begin the conversation, considering the fact that the public, namely you, and in a sense, all of us here, are both the benefactor and the beneficiary of research. How research is done? Research requires support, research funds. Where does it come? It comes from our tax dollar. You are actually driving the research. You own the research, but you never think about it that way. So I propose that individuals and community at large have a moral, ethical, civic, and even a spiritual responsibility to advancing health and a right to engage as active team members in biomedical research, to guide it, to direct it, to support it anyway, to own it. That's what I am proposing. Then I got inspired at 1 a.m. and I wrote another note. See if I can read it. That's a problem. 
So the second reason I maintain for this concept <laughs> oh, root, root. Yeah. has root in the basic principle of service to others. And in this case, service to next generation. What we do, what we produce today, would help our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. This is like putting money in their college fund. In this context, afford them a better health and a better life. And here is where the science and faith cross path. Because faith does the same thing. And science should do the same thing. So I believe this conversation is important because it has the potential for important outcomes regarding how the public and scientific community can collaborate to advance the health of humanity and the community and how they view their role and responsibility, interaction and engagement. We envision this approach will unleash the creative talent and inventiveness of the community to collaboratively bridge gaps and remove obstacles to translation and help to develop solutions to real-life clinical problems. The present discussion will attempt to provide reasons for the necessity of such approach and as important how this process can be assisted or guided by the power of the faith providing a harmonious collaborative relationship that allows the full realization of human I applaud that, and particularly our responsibility for future generations. And we see that in so many different aspects of our life, whether it be advancing health, whether it be environmental, whether it be anything. Uh, there's so many responsibilities that we have for the future, and it's that collaboration, it's, it's working together for the greater good in research and discovery and faith. You have to understand, I was a D-minus student in all sciences. I just really was, really, I never really did very well. But the one thing that I know about science and the one thing I have in common with every scientist is that neither of us has all the answers. We always have more questions than we have answers. And I think it's important that we humble ourselves and that we allow ourselves to be that vulnerable because we end up with a more honest result. And so the partnership is real. And I'll give you a quote. Science without religion is lame. Religion without science is blind. Anybody know who said that? Albert Einstein. Anyway, I just thought that was a marvelous perspective on it. And again, it points to the vulnerabilities that if we insulate ourselves one from another, then we impede the discovery of the goodness. We also heard from Dr. Ryan Spellacy. Ursula von der Rohr Professor of Bioethics and Medical Humanities in the Center for Bioethics and Medical Humanities at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Thanks for having us today. I want to talk to you about some of the research that we've done that applies this concept of faith and science together. And in particular, some community partners and I were concerned about barriers and strengths in the African-American community in Milwaukee when it comes to participation in cancer research. Uh, we know nationally African-American people participate in research at much lower rates than whites. Locally, at Frederick and the Medical College, we have data that shows it's about the same low participation. Now, for me, as a philosopher and a bioethicist, we can think of all kinds of reasons why this is a problem. Worse health outcomes, exacerbating already existing inequalities in health. But for me, this is a justice question. Because when we talk in ethics about justice in healthcare, 
Justice is the fair distribution of the risks and benefits of whatever the case may be. Here we're talking about the fair distribution of the risks and benefits of research. And if African Americans, by and large, don't participate in research, in cancer research in particular, they miss out on the benefits of advancements in health through research. One example is a colleague of ours at the medical college, Melinda Stolle. She does research on survivorship programs. So it used to be the case that nobody really paid attention to survivorship programs in things like breast cancer because women didn't live long enough. Now women are living long enough that they're surviving cancer and there's long-term health effects from the drugs that cured their cancer that have to be dealt with in the future. And the problem that Melinda found was that all of these survivorship programs were developed for basically white women that live in the suburbs. And you couldn't just take those programs and plop them in the inner city in Milwaukee because they didn't work. You can't go to uh, the south side of Chicago and say, well, just go to your 24-7 fitness and, or go to your WAC and uh, work out and here's your exercise program. So she worked and did research with African-American women on the south side of Chicago and now Latina women on the south side of Milwaukee to figure out how to adapt this research to those populations. This was our concern. How do we more fairly distribute the benefits of research to, in this case, African-American people in Milwaukee? And here's why it matters. A woman named Kirsten Beyer, she's an epidemiologist, and she uses geospatial mapping to understand disease burden based on zip code and geography. And what this shows you, this is first the incidence rates of breast cancer for the MCW Cancer Center. Redder is worse. Bluer is better. And if you'll notice, in the central city of Milwaukee, there is fewer breast cancer incidents than in the suburbs. So it looks initially maybe good for African-American women in the central city of Milwaukee because there's less breast cancer. Unfortunately, this is the late stage incidence rate. So that was early stage. This is late stage. We find much more later stage cancer discovery in the central city of Milwaukee in the African-American population than in the wider suburbs. What this tells us is it's not getting caught early. And then the worst of it is the mortality rate. Now you can really start to see how a much greater incidence of breast cancer mortality, African-American women dying from breast cancer as opposed to the suburbs. So this is a visual way of understanding what the problem is. And part of this, not all of it, part of this is because we haven't been able to translate the research and discoveries for African-American women in the central city that we have in the suburbs. It's the same treatments, right? It's the same drugs, it's the same mammograms, but we're seeing far worse outcomes and far worse detection in these populations. And this isn't, you know, as Dr. Shakir said earlier, looking around the world, you know, this isn't comparing us to some far off country. This is a distance of 15, 20 miles. So what do we do about this? Well, we know that participation rate in cancer trials is quite low in both populations, nationally and locally. And we also know nationally why this tends to be. There's a lot of mistrust. There might be lack of access. But in Milwaukee, we didn't know specifically why is there lower participation from African Americans in research and what might be the strengths of the community that we can leverage to help address that. Why does it matter? Well, until the reasons for low participation are known, 
attempts to increase participation will be uninformed and unsuccessful. We'll just be throwing darts at a wall and hoping they stick. And efforts to ameliorate cancer care inequalities that stem from lack of research, such as the differences in, I just showed you breast cancer, but the outcomes are very similar in prostate cancer as well for men. And those efforts to fix those things will fail. I mean, as a white man, I remember going into my primary care physician when I was about to turn 40 and said, hey, when do we do that whole prostate thing? And he said, oh, you don't have a family history and you're white, so 50. And I said, oh, okay. He said, yeah, unless there's a family history or you're African American, it's 50. And I said, really? He said, yeah, if you've got a family history, we do it at 40. Or if you're black, we do it at 40. And that's a real problem. I mean, there's no reason scientifically why we would need to do it that early. But we know that, as we saw with breast cancer, prostate cancer is much more aggressive and much more fatal in the African American male population. There's also the issue that we found of informed consent. And we know that it's related to, for my mindset as an ethicist, justice, but also what we call respect for persons. And respect for persons has to deal with informed consent. Informed consent is grounded in this idea of respect for persons where an individual ought to be able to decide for themselves how they live their lives. And if we approach them about participating in a research trial, they need the information to decide whether or not they want to help us participate in this clinical trial or not. But if there's barriers, we have to address those barriers. And usually we think of the barriers in terms of, is the consent form too long? Is it too wordy? Is it using jargon that no one understands? But there's also barriers that are at a root cause, such as mistrust or misinformation that we have to better understand in our communities to address those as a community level. Because for some people, they won't even consider a cancer clinical trial, regardless of what a great job we do explaining the cancer clinical trial, because of decades of well-earned mistrust between the black community and medicine as a whole. So to address this, I got together with some community partners in the black community and did three focus groups with churches in Central City, Milwaukee. The conversations, the focus groups were led by my community partners. Uh, who are all African-American, and collaboratively, we developed the questions we would ask and the focus group guides in partnership. And then participants were paid for their time. And I put that in there because the people in the focus groups were paid because we think this is important, that if you're going to come and participate in a focus group and do the research, I mean, let's be honest, I'm getting paid to do this. You have information that is valuable to me. That's why we're doing this. We ought to pay people that participate in our research studies like this, even if it's just a focus group. So what did we find out? Well, as expected, we found about a history of abuse and distrust. And these are quotes from actual participants in these black churches that they told us. They told us things like, I'm skeptical about even doing this sleep study, which a sleep study isn't even a research study, right? That's where if you've got snoring or apnea, you go overnight and they hook up a bunch of machines to you and you sleep and they see what happens. This person was skeptical about clinical care, doing this sleep study. Tuskegee and what they did to the black people, I don't trust a lot of these studies because of that. And a pastor told us, this was a pastor of a congregation told us, Tuskegee is the reason I don't get a flu shot. So we're sitting here, and that was a real wake-up call for us, because we're sitting here saying, how can we address this justice issue, this respect for persons issue of unequal participation in research so that the African-American community can benefit from the benefits of research? 
And we've got barriers to even providing basic clinical care like the flu shot because of issues like the history of Tuskegee. Race was an issue, but not what we thought it was going to be. My community partners, one of them in particular, thought people are going to say it matters who the physician is. The color of the physician will matter. People will trust a black doctor, but not a white doctor. Some did express that, but most expressed that the race of the physician did not affect trust on an individual level. A few, though, expressed a preference for an African-American physician. So most said things like, if a white doctor comes to the Women's Center on Vliet and you sense their sincereness, that's what matters. It comes across, and it's not something you can fake. White or black doesn't make a difference. And that was encouraging to us because it says to us, like, if there's a connection on a personal level, a sincerity, we can start to overcome this history of well-earned mistrust. Although some did say, I'm pro-black, pro-black business, pro-black health, so everything is equal, I would have a preference for a black doctor. That's not to say that this person wouldn't trust a white physician, but given the choice, would prefer a black physician. They told us about a need for education, uh, that the lack of background medical knowledge to understand the goals of clinical trials and the lack of understanding of informed consent were described as barriers, and that there were numerous anecdotes shared with us about long consent forms and confusing conversations. And to be frank, this is not unique to any community. This is the case across ethnic groups, racial groups, educational background. We need to do a much better job with education at the ground level, which is part of the goals of this series. I hope I've painted a fairly bleak picture for you for where we are right now, but I'm going to end on a positive note. And that is two things. One is altruism. This came out time and time again. And I remember one woman in particular telling us that she said that when she got pregnant, she made sure that she got her prenatal vitamins from the Walgreens where the white women get their prenatal vitamins because she knew that the prenatal vitamins that they give you at the free clinic are expired and they put things in there to test them on black women. And for a second I thought, you know, this is crazy. And then I immediately had the thought, wait a second. So this woman thinks that the prenatal vitamins at the free clinic are expired by the government and they're secretly putting things in there to test on you. That would be just as crazy as if the government had a syphilis study and they intentionally denied the participants of that syphilis study penicillin when it was shown to be safe and effective, right? I'm describing the Tuskegee syphilis study. And if you understand the history, it's not a stretch to have a belief like that. That's what we were up against. But we also found really strong beliefs of altruism, as Dr. Shakir was mentioning earlier, the idea of doing this for our grandchildren and such. One participant in the focus groups told us, if it would help somebody in the future, then I'd think, hey, it was worth it. And another individual told us, participating in a study, I know it's not going to help me, but it could help my granddaughter. That's my motivation. So there was a strong sense and, and a shared ideal of this research can help future generations, our community, that's why I would do it. Even though there's this history of mistrust, I see this as an opportunity to help my community and my kids moving forward. And then lastly, the role of faith. The influence of faith, as well as the pastor's recommendation, could increase a willingness to participate in clinical trials 
even in the face of a history of racism and mistrust. And this was interesting. A few said they would rely heavily on the pastor's recommendations, while others said they would listen to the pastor but come to their own conclusion. And we saw this differently in different congregations. One congregation in particular was very deferential to the pastor. The others, you had a, the pastors themselves would say, well, I mean, I have an obligation to share with my parishioners or with my congregants what I know. I have a divine mandate to do that, but I'm not going to tell them what to do. It's up to them to decide for themselves, and that's what their parishioners or their congregants reflected as well. I would listen to what the pastor has to say, but then I would decide for myself. But one in particular said, we have an obligation to use what God has given us for good. If that means participating in a cancer study, then I'll do it. So at the end of the day, there's a bleak history out there, but conceptions such as altruism and wanting to benefit the community, as well as faith and the belief that there's a moral obligation to advance the good through science and discovery are encouraging findings we had in this study to help move forward on these issues of just and respect for persons in Milwaukee's black community. Then we received insight from Dr. Fabrice Jodorand, Associate Professor of Bioethics and Medical Humanities and Director of the Graduate Program in Bioethics at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Good morning and thanks for coming. So what I'd like to do is explain a little bit uh, part of a project. We got some money, it's $5 million, to look at the question of health equity or how to address the question of health disparities. Full disclosure, I come from Switzerland. This is why I have a little accent. But I come from a country where everybody's covered. They don't have, since I'm here, but they don't have the same issues. I mean, they have issues with cost in Switzerland. Uh, it's uh, one of the most expensive system in the world, but not as expensive as here in the United States. And when we look at health outcomes, the outcomes are much better. So for me, it's really, uh, I'm puzzled by uh, this issue and how can we improve the system? So part of the project um, on this grant, one is to uh, develop a conceptual framework to address the question of health equity. And we have an article, and Ryan is one of the co-authors, under review where we develop this framework uh, that is based on four pillars. Uh, I'm not going to talk too much about it. I think we're going to have time uh, later if you want to hear about it. But the second one is on this question of the neuroscience of poverty. Uh, who has heard about this notion of the neuroscience of poverty? Okay, some of you have heard that. But the question is how poverty broadly conceived affect the brain of children or the development of uh, the brain of children. And then I want to tie that to communities of faith. And Dr. Shakir was mentioning the is and then the could. What I'd like to add is the ought, which is the moral dimension. And how do we move forward? And of course, we have some ideals about how we want to provide health care, increase access, and so forth. So I want to show you, hopefully, that communities of faith are important to address this question. So when we talk about the uh, neuroscience of poverty, we need to be very careful because you look at the brain of an individual affected by poverty. So you see less activation. So it would be very easy to say, oh, well, okay, now you're stuck. 
and then you lived in poverty, it means that, you know, in the future, you're going to be quote-unquote sick. So what we have to be very careful when we talk about these issues, the neuroscience of poverty, is that biology is not destiny. It's not because you live in poverty that necessarily the brain of a child will be affected. So then what we need to do is also to make a distinction between poverty and socioeconomic status. Because when we talk about poverty, usually it's about material circumstances. But when we talk about socioeconomic status, it's about material circumstances, but it's also standard of livings, economic circumstances, and then social circumstances in terms of security, in terms of inclusion, social class, etc., etc. If you live in, in that environment and you hear these noises, you feel threatened, and this will have an effect on you psychologically, but on kids, it will also affect their brain, their psychological development, and I'm going to give you some examples. I don't know if uh, you heard about this poverty report that was published in 2016 called Poverty, Incomes, Race, and Ethnicity in Wisconsin and Milwaukee. And what's very interesting, if you look at the concentration of poverty, not surprising, it's right here. It's in Milwaukee, right? And then if you go north, uh, let's say Ozaki County, you're not going to see the same effect. This is not surprising. And this was the poverty rate by race and ethnicity. And not surprising, black communities more affected by poverty. So to what Dr. Spellisi was mentioning about uh, disparities in terms of the black community and, let's say, the white community, we see these disparities. So in terms of, of poverty. But when you look at child poverty by race and ethnicity, and you see exactly the same problem. So we see that we need to do a much better job of integrating and making sure that every community has access to good services. What's very interesting in my research about equity, I look at the literature in Europe. It's never about race. It's about socioeconomics. Here, most of the time, it's about race. So there is a history. I mean, I've been here only for three years, and it's interesting to me what I've seen in the community compared to Texas, where I spent 13 years. And I think the dynamic between these various communities, ethnicities, it's a little bit different. I think in Texas, it's more integrated. Here, it's very kind of, you see the differences. And I made some observation, and I had to learn to navigate in that context. So what do we mean by the neuroscience of poverty? A quick definition, it's the examination of the effects of poverty, socioeconomic status on early brain development. But we have to be careful, as I mentioned previously, because it would be easy to say that poverty is like a disease. Oh, you live in poverty, you must have X. The danger is that you might stigmatize poor children. They are sick. And I think we need to stay away from that because you stigmatize people, but also potentially communities. So when we talk about brain development, what we have to be careful is it's not just about poverty, but as I mentioned previously, it's about community violence. It's about also what we call neuroepigenetics, is how the environment is shaping your biology, simply said. But for the sake of time, I want to move further. So, but what is the impact of low socioeconomic status on brain development? Poor cognitive outcomes, lower academic achievements, and then in terms of mental health, higher risk of antisocial behavior and higher risk of mental disorders. 
In terms of lower academic achievement, what we see is now people are pushing, or some people are pushing uh, the use of certain drugs to address that question. I think it's very problematic. And the reason I'm saying that is because we're going to talk about what does it mean to be a community of faith or how do we live in community? So the tendency I see around the country is to say, oh, we have a, a social problem and what do we do? We push technology, technology broadly conceived in terms of devices or drugs. And I think we need to be very careful. So the key questions are how to address disparities in child brain development caused by low socioeconomic status. That is, now, do we want to push more drugs, meaning pharmaceuticals, or do we want to build better communities, invest in schools? And then should we gather data about Milwaukee and Wisconsin? This is, I'm floating with that idea, but I don't have the same kind of integration as Dr. Spilisi in the community. And this is something that I have to be very careful because I'm an outsider. And I said without joking, you know, I'm a white guy with an accent. I'm an outsider. And so to be in that community, I have to be very careful. I have to understand the history of Milwaukee. And so I've been in the United States for 24 years now. So I have a good sense of the United States and the problem of racism and all of that and all these disparities. But still, I'm an outsider and I have to go step by step and have people from the community and build this trust and relationship. And then the last question is, what ethical framework should help develop policies to mitigate the impact of poverty on the brain of children? So we have to be very careful here because we have a systemic problem, but ultimately these structures, these systems are the outcome of what people think about these issues. So this is my invitation, and you certainly know this quote, an unexamined life is not worth living. So I want us to pause a little bit, and I want to do this through the work of de Tocqueville. This was a Frenchman who came to the United States, and he was asked by the French government to come here and try to understand the prison system here in the United States in the 19th century. But basically, out of this trip, he was puzzled by the democracy in the United States at that time. And in particular, he was exploring the relationship between equality and freedom. And then he asked the question of the problem of democracy. I don't want to go into this, but the question is how to develop a sense of public morality, going back to what Dr. Shakir said about research, and Dr. Spilisi also in terms of how to be involved in the community, how to develop a sense of public morality, hence to be in the community. What kind of values should we promote? What are these rights? What are these responsibilities? to what extent this is a civic duty slash moral duty to be involved and in trying to guide research and discovery. Because we are in a very individualistic country, right? And so when we talk about faith, are we talking about just the individual or the communities? Because faith, and Reverend, correct me if I'm wrong, but usually we live in communities. Faith is not just oh, I'm on top of the mountain and I have faith and I do my own little thing. No, it is always within communities. So the question is, here within Milwaukee, how do we encourage these various communities of faith to taggle along and follow what Dr. Shagir mentioned in terms of promoting health through discovery and research? 
So, in reference to the Tocqueville, is this idea of the habits of the heart. And so what are these habits? It's really about how we behave in the world. What is the values that are guiding our duty to be involved in our communities? And then it's about character of mind. And then the moral intellectual condition of a people, that is, communities. Tocqueville was referring to the American people. And then features favorable to the maintenance of political institutions. You could remove political and say health institutions. You know, what are these features that characterize MCW in terms of how people behave within that community, within MCW, but how do we reach communities? So what's very interesting is that Dr. Tocqueville, he was not a religious person, he didn't have any religious agenda, but he saw that religion was very important in the 19th century in America. And for him, religion was an anchor and regulated domestic life. Hence, I think faith is important, but faith not at the individual level, but within communities. And I think if we want to have healthy communities, healthy biologically, but also spiritually and mentally, this is what I would suggest if you look at the work of the Tocqueville. What is important well, is the family, personal relationship, and then democratic participation, public engagement. And this is what Dr. Shakir was mentioning, to be involved in the community. What Dr. Spellisi is doing is engaging the community. And then we need to also think about what are the values that are guiding our scientific enterprise. And I think a community of faith like this one could provide some insights and say, well, but we want a better system, a more just system. We want people to have access to healthcare. And then I could talk about habits of the heart. Let me give you just an example. Justice, how do we understand justice? It's more about transactional, right? It's contractual. But if you go back in history to, for instance, Aristotle, justice was something that you embody in the way you behave in the world. So justice is not just to say, oh, I have the right to. No, justice is how you live your life every day and how you promote a sense of justice in how you relate to others. So thank you very much. Here again is Father Jeffrey Ward. I've really enjoyed each of these presentations very much because they each give you know, different, different context to this whole idea of partnership of faith and science. And I was especially uh, happy to hear about this notion of community and the idea of not just the is or could be, but the ought. That is clearly where our partnership is most operative. And to give you an example of that here at St. Christopher's, about two years ago, there was a five-part series at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel on uh, generational poverty and systemic trauma. It was fabulous, and I suspect it's probably still on the online uh, access to the journal. I highly commend it to all of you, because it was highly educational on exactly um, what we heard here today in terms of how this socioeconomic, and even beyond that, you get into the they call it an ACE test or acute childhood experiences that collectively um, really have a deleterious effect on uh, the development of a child's brain. 
And it does point to an important social justice issue, and it also points to the fact that the solution is not singular. Uh, it's one of those things, I think, that, that as community, trying to solve the world in 140 characters or less, not gonna happen. And community is so important, and we talk about that here at St. Christopher's all the time. We, we see church as community, not as obligation. Uh, that when we gather together, we do it out of love for one another, and that we do it to reach beyond our building and to into the community. So in the case of the uh, five-part series, that inspired our mission and outreach committee to really genuinely step outside of our building, get into the community in a greater way, to help to uh, deal with exactly that map that you saw uh, down in the inner city. It's only 10 miles from here, uh, and yet there's so many things that are just crying for our help. So we affiliated with a group called City on a Hill, and we've done a number of things there, uh, helping out with their um, monthly medical clinic, and, um, and then we uh, recently, in the last year, put together a literacy initiative because we found that uh, many of these kids that are in the after-school program there are reading at a uh, level two or three grades behind where they are. And the, the, one of the scariest statistics I ever heard uh, in my life was that the chief predicator for future prison populations is third grade reading scores. Uh, that set off an alarm for us. And so we're in there helping, and we're seeing some of the examples of what was talked about here uh, in terms of their development um, that the, between the trauma and the poverty and things like lead poisoning, uh, there's a huge, huge challenge. Um, it takes community. It isn't just about money and resources. It has to be delivered by people. And it really is a point of compassion, and it really speaks to uh, the companion to this idea of creation and having an invitation to find the goodness in creation. Well, the, the companion to that is an understanding and a belief that we are made in the image of God. Not in terms of our skin color or our hair or eyes or nose or any of that. We're created in the image of God in terms of an innate goodness that is in each person. And when we can actually see people for that, then it can take us away from a tendency to objectify, to put people into boxes. And it opens up all kinds of possibilities for us. And so um, it really is a, a true partnership. Um, we also recently went to a meeting down at Employ Milwaukee. And this is an effort of trying to get people in neighborhoods down there in the near west side connected with employers. And here again, in this case, Mayor Barrett stepped up to the microphone because this was all faith-based leaders that were congregated at Employ Milwaukee, which is a collaboration of city, county, and state. Uh, and uh, he stepped up and said to all these faith leaders from all kinds of backgrounds um, that you all, he said, can do something that government can't. And you can mobilize and be there and, and connect those really, really important dots, fill those important gaps. So that's what we're doing, and we do it one step at a time. Uh, as Dr. Shakur pointed out, you know, we may, we may not even see uh, within a lifetime of our own 
the real fruits of our labors, but we will have planted a seed. And then another one, and another one, and another one. That, to me, is the essence of community. It's not like, oh, we're just going to fix it all right now, and if we don't fix it my way, then that's just really going to be a problem. We plant seeds, and we water them, and we do it together. And so I, I think that this really demonstrated um, uh, a lot of commonality between us in terms of that search and discovery for goodness. Next, we entered into a community conversation, taking questions and comments from members of our live audience. Each of you in your own way has talked about the importance of community and religious communities of faith. Uh, yet, Public Religion Research Institute and Pew have both done uh, studies about religious belonging, and some of it's hit, you know, made headlines. And for the people born after 1987, 37% have no religious affiliation. And that trend, you know, year by year has been creeping up a percent here, a percent there. So um, I don't have any fantasies about returning to, you know, the resurgence of the Christian church and religious, traditional religious belonging that may have existed in my youth. But it's a very different context for some of these challenges that you're talking about where the traditional religious communities no longer exist. Young people are finding meaning and purpose in other forms of community, perhaps, that are working for, well, are working for them right now at this point in their lives. But uh, my question is, given what's happening with religious belonging in the United States, where, how does that affect what you're trying to do? Well, this is a very good question for Father Ward to answer because he's connected. We are not. <laughs> well, I really believe the answer to your question is in, in encouraging people to re-envision church. Uh, I believe that church in the 21st century is necessarily different than in the 20th century. And, you know, the Episcopal Church, we kind of identify one of our, our problems uh, to uh, work on is that we have uh, 19th century buildings and 20th century locations trying to serve a 21st century church. It's a paradox. And sometimes um, you, we can look at it and say that one of the most difficult tasks we placed on ourselves as church is to build walls around ourselves. Now we have a lovely church and a beautiful place of worship and um, we cherish it. But if we find ourselves confined into those walls and insulated, then we have a problem. And so that's why this reaching out into community, I think that um, ecumenism would be the word that comes to mind for me, of working genuinely with other faith traditions. There are always going to be people that have uh, deemed it irrelevant. That won't change our mind that we believe that it is relevant. I'll give you a perfect example, you know, see, you know, when we say people that were born after eight, you know, 1987 uh, may not have that background, but that doesn't mean that they won't. And I'll give you the perfect example, and I thank you for doing this. I've been holding this book the whole time. This is written by a gentleman by the name of C.S. Lewis. I think you all have heard of him. Um, he uh, famously wrote the children's series, The Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, and all of that. But what he is really famous for in the faith community is that he was an avowed atheist. And he had a conversion uh, that propelled him into being arguably one of the greatest 20th century theologians uh, that we've known. 
And this is a great book called Miracles. It happened to be a favorite book of my uh, father uh, as he, in his last uh, year of life. Um, and it talks about the natural and the supernatural. And science clearly has a real handle on pursuing through research and discovery that which is natural. Uh, there is the question when it comes to faith traditions, regardless of what that faith tradition is, um, is the supernatural. And does the supernatural periodically interfere with the natural? It's a beautiful discovery. And, it's, um, and it really brings it into a very, very broad perspective. And I'll read you real quickly one thing. He says in here, you are probably quite right in thinking you will never see a miracle done. You are probably quite right in thinking that there was a natural explanation of anything in your past life which seemed at first glance to be odd. God does not shake miracles into nature at random as from a pepper shaker. They come on great occasions. They are found in the great gaglions of history, not of political or social history, but of that of spiritual history, which cannot be fully known by man. And I think that's where um, the, the, the faith journey, again, returns back to the idea of vulnerability. We don't have all the answers. We have way more questions than we have answers. But when we have those questions and we have them in dialogue and community, it leads us to answers, and maybe not the ones that we were looking for, before we started today, Dr. Shakir and I were out talking, and um, on, and really that very point, that uh, that the questions will always keep coming, and that we may not have the answer to things, um, but we may set up for a future generation to have the answer for the questions that we're asking. So our sense of community is not confined to community here today. Milwaukee, United States, the world, the seven billion that are here now. We, that community extends way into the future when all of that seven billion are replaced by seven billion others. It's a, a journey, actually, for humanity. And uh, in my lifetime, I've seen several, I've lived in several societies. The, what you are referring has almost a sinusoidal wave. It goes up and down, up and down. But overall, people who maybe are not as interested, over time that tide changes. And the reason they are not interested are many, many. Uh, but the faith never dies. It's always there. And what we are trying to say is faith is the key to the heart of people. And that key needs to be used to make human health better. We are making human spirit, human life human next life, all those spirituality better through faith. But why aren't we using that power to make the health of the humanity better? And God knows that we need it if we look at it, not for even this generation, but for the next and the next generation. That's the whole idea. The power is there, the resource is there, we call it faith. And it's unbelievable power in it. So that's where faith and science needs to come together and work together for the betterment of humanity. I would like to provide maybe a more political uh, analysis in a sense. 
I think we, you know, in the United States, we have this separation of state and church, and we think that uh, the church or faith or religion has no input in public life. And I think the church has lost it, its ability to be involved in these discussions. Look at the political context now. Um, people are targeting churches now. What was very interesting to me, and I'm, I'm Swiss, so I'm neutral, so I can make that comment. Uh, now, but it's very interesting, like this is the political climate that uh, even in academia, uh, if you say that you're a religious person in academia, depending on the context, you're going to be a target. So this journey, as we train future uh, scientists, will these individuals be able, if we have religious students, medical students, researchers, or if you have a full university in the humanities and other uh, disciplines, mm -hmm. Do we nurture that or do we try to, you know, kill it? And I think this is the problem we have. When we talk about this interaction between faith and science, um, people will use science to say, well, forget about this religion stuff. It's totally irrelevant. But science answers different type of questions. The issues of values, science will not be able to uh, to answer. So if you answer, if you, you know, this notion of the common good, the good of society, the good of patients, we're all patients, science will not answer that question. And we need to be able to go beyond that and build this, these communities where we have these reflections. But to have that interaction and dare to, to go, uh, as a community of faith and say, this is what we think it's important. If you look at the model uh, of Europe, um, this is why I, I'm saying the, these things because secularization has, if you look at France, they're in crisis in terms of their own culture. And so I think we need to be open to the culture of others and be uh, you know, cosmopolitan. But we need to create those spaces where people can be who they are, as a community of faith, for instance. So I think this is very important. So for this reason, I, I wanted to, to add that political dimension. And the, the current political climate is very puzzling to me. And I don't know where it's going. Um, I have a question about the brain scans on the impact of poverty on the children. Can you talk a little bit about some of the interventions you've, we've seen or any of you along the way that with community or other strategies to deal with some of these, this trauma and this poverty and future brain scans that showed that, hey, this, these interventions might, might have worked? I think this is an excellent question, but I'm not sure I'm going to give you a satisfactory answer because we had a, a conference at MCW on that particular topic, on the neuroscience of poverty, and we invited Martha Farah. She's a neuropsychologist from Penn, and she started looking at these questions 10 years ago, and uh, there was a big pushback for the reasons I mentioned. Um, I started this project last year. So in terms of interventions, I think at this point what I need is to gather information. Could we compare children 
the zip code, whatever it is, five, three, Two, yes, compared to Cedarburg, Brookfield. And what kind of data do we, do we have? And then how can we make those changes? But again, I want to make sure that we're not intervening and in saying, oh, take Ritalin. Your kid will perform better in school because, you know, cognitively they, ha- they will have more energy or stuff like this. Now it has to be about better schools, investing in education, you know, and uh, things like that. So at this point, we don't have particular intervention that we've done. But if we want to address the educational gap, what we need to do is create better communities, uh, better access to, well, healthcare, but education, um, maybe for uh, single mothers. You know, to have a system where the kid is not just at home and I don't know what to do, I'm going to do, you know, and and provide that type of environment where these kids can uh, thrive and and, and flourish. Um, At this point, I don't have an answer for Milwaukee, um, but uh, there are different ways. But again, I think now what we need to do is to publish about it, change the mind, and then maybe politically try to write a white paper, send it to Madison and say, hey, this is the data, this is what could be done, it works in different contexts, et cetera, et cetera. That being said, uh, my kids went to uh, the Cedarboro High School, they have also their own problems in terms of vaping, in terms of smoking, other stuff, in terms of even suicide. So they have their own challenges too. So it's not a satisfactory answer, but how do we build a healthy community? And it has to start with the family too. And uh, it has to be also about being in the community, the role of the community, and then develop these habits, these values that will shape the mind of the younger generation. And it has to be also about religion, if you're a religious person. But we don't live in a vacuum. And I think religion is part of a bigger picture, but it's also part of this process where you infuse values, you shape the mind of these younger generations, and it starts in school and family. So it's not, I don't think it's a satisfactory answer, but uh, there are different ways to do it. Do we have the means? I don't know, Dr. Shakir, to, to, to make those type of intervention in relation to the neuroscience of poverty. I don't know if you have any... As you mentioned, it's an incredibly complex problem. The causation is complex. The solution is even more complex. So while the causation is subject to investigation, so is the solution. Now, but the good news is that there are efforts, and some of them are happening in Milwaukee, and this is a little out of a school. I don't know, I don't want to embarrass her, but if Dr. Ward can say a few words about the CAN project of the CTSI. Joining our community conversation, Dr. Dorielle Ward, Executive Director of CTSI Administration and the CTSI Child Advancement Network. So the CTSI's Child Advancement Network, we have a collaboration with the Basils Family Foundation and uh, they have actually um, joined with us in an effort to narrow the achievement gaps in Southeast Wisconsin. The Bezos Family Foundation developed this app some years ago, an app, literally an app, a very practical solution. 
with the notion that you already have what it takes. Parents, families, communities, whether they live in a lower SES communities or uh, wherever. So this app is very practical. You go into the app, you create a profile of your child, and the scope is between zero and five years. So you create the profile, and any time you want to, right, you can go in and receive messages through the app that parents can use with their children, whether it's playtime, bath time, traveling, going to the pharmacy, wherever you are. And it provides messages and tools as a parent or a grandmother or whatever family member or a friend, wherever you might see a child, on exercises you can do with the children that can provide st brain stimulation, literally brain stimulation. Now this practice has been researched by behavioral scientists, neuroscientists, uh, biological scientists at large, right? And population health scientists, and it actually has significant results. Fabrizia, you spoke about the brain scans of children. So some of that research was done with this app as well over years, longitudinal studies for many years to see if it really is going to make a difference. So we were approached by the Basis Family Foundation. The Child Advancement Network was launched a couple of years ago by the generous um, contribution of the Hurstville Foundation and the Milwaukee Succeeds as well. And uh, we're actually preparing to take this research a little bit further with hopefully generous support from the Basil's Family Foundation in Milwaukee. So we form collaborations with close to 400 churches at this point across many, many neighborhoods. And we want to go ahead and test this app to see you know, if it works in Milwaukee. We have had promising results so far. We've done a lot of surveys right now. We've done a lot of uh, conversations with church leaders who are really our ambassadors. Again, we tell people that you already have what it takes. You don't have to be a rich person. You can simply sign up on this app, and the app will help you with the messages and the tools right, to teach your children, stimulate the brain, and prepare that child for school, because that is really the ambition that we have. That's the goal that we have. We want to make sure that you know, every child is prepared for school. And there's a finite number of days that we have, 18, 1,825 days we have until that child goes to school. And what do we do as parents, our family members, communities, what do we do if we come together and we use this tool and we speak to each other? We also do a lot of other things besides the app, right? We bring together the church leaders. We We've spoken with hundreds of pastors, uh, hundreds of community members um, who come together and they want to make sure that these achievement gaps are narrowed. So we've been using uh, these methods and a lot of other methods uh, through the CTSI Child Advancement Network. We actually were, we attended uh, the conference that we spoke about um, and we helped to sponsor that in a very small way, but a lot of our pastors from the community and community members that we work with attended and they really understood that message. You know, the whole notion of faith, right? We, it, is it a noun? Is it a verb? We tend to think about it in terms of a noun, right? But it's doing. It is, in my mind, even the atheist has faith. We have faith we're going to wake up tomorrow. We have faith we're going to drive from A to Z. We have faith that there's a future. Everyone has faith, right? And, and I think that Dr. Shakir and the panel members here and all of us can agree that 
it is really a verb. It is in every person we are able to live faith, to be faith. Not only to be faithful, but use the faith that God has given us to motivate us. Not only be in a faith community, but practicing faith and the belief of faith. It is like an energy that drives us every day. It drives us to believe, to come here, to just interact with each other. It drives us to love. It drives us to do the common good. I think that if we begin to think of the faith, we understand that that connects all seven billion of us, whether we go to church or not. There is faith. So if we can find ways to tap into that faith every day, it is like consciousness. It is a conscious way of being. We become faith itself. And in so doing, we pray and we come together. We all know, you know, when two of, or more of us are joined together in that faith, we can move mountains. Whether you're confined to the home, whether or not you're unable to go to some of these communities in need that we've heard about today, still that faith is that energy. It is that power that Dr. Shakir is talking about that can really drive, right, uh, our, our ambitions and drive our world forward. And perhaps we can't talk to those who don't believe. We can't talk in the message of Christ. Perhaps we can't begin by doing that. But we certainly can begin by talking about that faith. And that faith will drive us and motivate us to participate. Again, in, if it's just in that prayer, because there is power in that prayer. We've seen it in science in the placebo effect, right? When some of us have had the actual drug and some of us have had a placebo and the outcome might be the same. What's going on there? The faith. Those that take the placebo, they don't know what they're getting, whether or not it's the actual drug or not, but the outcome is the same. There's power in this faith. Again, if we think about it in terms of a verb of doing and become it, live it every day, we can still drive because it's a collective consciousness that we have together as believers and that obligates us to make our world a better place. You know, that's a fabulous observation, the idea of it being <coughs> a verb, uh, being an action. I, I love that. And, and I think it helps to connect the dots on the prior question about what about people that don't have a particular belief in God? And I think that's true, the, the, the idea of mobilizing agency no matter who it is, whatever their faith tradition is or not uh, in terms of religion. But I love the idea that we all have some brand of faith because we you know, have faith that we're going to be able to get safely to the parking lot and back home. And, and you know, just as a, to kind of challenge all of our thinking, I'll throw this out to you, that the common supposition is that the polar opposite of faith is disbelief. I happen to not believe that that's true. I think that the polar opposite of faith is fear. And fear is paralyzing. And it's related to a couple other things that are paralyzing, guilt and shame. They got no business being part of our world. Doesn't mean we don't have remorse for things that we do wrong, but that's different than carrying a baggage of guilt and shame. And these are destructive forces that challenge any brand of faith. Our faith tradition happens to value all persons, no matter if they believe in what we believe in or not. We hang our hat on two core principles. One is redemption, because ultimately, you know, we're not all good in our behavior, and a resurrection, a new life, a life hereafter. Now, 
we know that there are people that don't necessarily believe that particular brand of faith. However, it should not change how we see them as a child of God. If we have that belief that everyone was created in the image of God with that innate goodness that's in us, we just got to keep looking for it, then it shouldn't matter if they're Christian, Jew, Muslim, Buddhist. You had one that you wanted me to... Baha'i. We're going to talk to some Baha'i people together. Or people that are atheistic. Because the other verb that is related to faith would be that we change. (laughs) Change is a verb, right? And so our understanding of our faith may be a little different today than it is a year, five years, ten years, or, and so on. So I think that really speaks, once again, back to the whole notion of community. And if we live in community, we keep asking the questions, we help each other to try to understand what answers we have, then we begin to advance that discovery, right? Absolutely. I see, actually, similarities, what you were saying, between what you said and in medicine, various disciplines of medicine. So I'm a gastroenterologist, and we have otolaryngologists, and we have surgeons, and we are all different. And sometimes we deny the certain principles that we operate upon. But then when you dig deep, there is some baseline principle that we all agree, and most of the time we forget that we have that commonality among us. So the beauty of advancing health through research and discovery and collaboration between faith and the science community has the magnificent opportunity that can bring everybody together and there is no disagreement. Nobody can say that advancing health is bad. So that's the point that we can converge. And then, no matter what our faith is, faith is powerful. And we have to use the power and strength to drive the good agenda that is advancing the health of us, the health of those who are less fortunate than us, and the health of the next generation. I think that could be a massive, laudable community project. And in this field, I clearly see that the community of faith should be the leader. Because we are trapped in the research lab. We are practicing medicine day in and day out. We need some guidance, some opportunity that should be provided by the leaders of faith. That's where science and faith joins together and can work together. So now, Father Ward and us have been discussing developing a council of faith for advancing health through research and discovery. And that council can even include those who claim they don't have religion. Because although they may not have religion, but they have faith. Because on the advancing health, we can all converge and agree. And that's a common ground that we can all work together. And that could be a good example how spirituality and science come together to improve and to help and to assist the human race. I agree with what you said. I think the challenge we have is science and technology give us the tools to reshape ourselves. And we come to a point where we have not individualism, but hyper-individualism. And I think this is a challenge. And I was wondering, how do we go beyond that? And how do we recapture this notion of community, considering that we work in a scientific world, we are at the medical school, and 
the tools that we are developing is really about the individual, the patient. Health, I think, is more something that we need to decide. What would we, do we mean when we say we want to improve health? Because the way you understand health is X, but you might go to another place and say, well, these are my needs. So in that sense, I think we need to develop a vision. The faith is what is pushing us, but we need to develop a vision for ourselves as human beings. I think that when we talk about health, so often we think about me, okay? I'm going to take this to fix my problem, but it's focused on self. And the truth is that health as a community is a really important issue. In many ways, we got a mighty sick community out there over what I would refer to as a disease of hatred. Now, that is a health risk. I did a sermon about the disease of hatred, and the disease is the right word because it functions that way. It starts off very small, but it becomes big, and it spreads, and it hurts, and it can kill. That's a virus. Well, hatred functions the same way. And last week, the article in the journal was on treating violence, which obviously is tied to hatred, as a disease. And there's a group called 414 Life. And what they're doing is they're identifying these sources of hatred that are exploding into these arguments that end up with shootings and trauma. And so what they're doing is they're coming in now early to say, we're going to try to get this before it grows into that disease. We're going to intervene, try to be an intervention group that helps to keep it from bubbling over that way. Now, wouldn't that be a mighty fine thing if we could do that same thing in our political life, in our lack of civil discourse? Because I believe these things to be affected by that kind of disease. The good news is that we can choose to not be a carrier of the disease. We can choose to be part of the cure, but we have to do that in community. It can't be just one person, and it won't be done in 140 characters or less. It'll be done by doing just the opposite of the disease. We're going to start the cure, and there are some viruses that you have to take antibiotics for like over a year to get rid of. Well, we have to have that kind of patience as a community, that we say, we're going to start out small, but we're going to grow, and what we grow is not going to kill. It's going to do just the opposite. And that's called love. And it is the stronger of the two. It's just that it needs active involvement. It needs the verb. It can't be a noun. And that's where faith community comes together because a big, big part of what we do in community is we lift each other up. Because we all fall. And it's a matter of are we helping lift each other up or are we saying to the other, get yourself up. You're not my problem. I couldn't help but notice that um you used the three-legged stool in talking about wellness. And the Episcopal Church was founded on a three-legged stool of reason and scripture and faith. And it fits so well in what we're called to do as Christians. As any people of faith, we can build our faith together with the science, with the health of people. I'm just wondering, how do we bring that all together? How do we do it? Well, the organization of this is not as difficult because the NIDIS is here, and the next step probably would be engaging other denominations, totally different faiths, and provide the common ground, which I think is right there because that's something that is universal among 
all faiths. And then from there, that group, which we call the Council of Faiths in, for Advancing Health Through Research and Discovery, and that's what we are focusing, nothing else. Advancing health through research and discovery. That's our goal. And then this council could have the next level, push it up into their community, and we are envisioning that maybe in a year or two, we will have a large conference involving all faiths in Southeast Wisconsin, that not only we will hear experts' opinion, we will have assemblies of thoughts among people of faith, people of science, talking to each other, addressing these issues. We need to do it all in together. This is not a topic that we can sit here and decide for the community to solve. It just doesn't happen. This is not something that is solvable from Washington or anyplace else. It's solvable from the heart of the people, all in together, talking to each other, that have found this common thread. Takes a little time, little energy, a lot of faith, and I can tell you, we have the right leader for it. So are you asking us to exercise our faiths, whatever that may be, to drive and participate and understand our rights and responsibilities to advance health? Because everyone has a right to health. We have a responsibility to participate in making that happen for everyone. Is that what you're asking us to do, that chicken? Yes, I am. But I was speaking in parable. <laughs> Again, it returns back to the beginning of how we started this session. And that is that if we look at the creation story as an invitation to search into the goodness of creation, then we do it through invitation and welcome. That's where we can benefit others that are in such great need and folks that we may disagree on, whether it be politically or religiously, but we always return back to invitation and welcome. You're welcome here, no matter what you believe or think, because together we do find that common ground, as Dr. Shakir says. Once we have some common ground, then we can find other common ground, and we are informing each other, just like scripture and tradition and reason all inform each other, we can do the same thing. So this is a germination. It starts in the beginning. It's an invitation to find the goodness, and we're in the journey together. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to CTSI Science Cafe. We invite you to join us and be part of our next community conversation. To learn more about CTSI Science Cafe and how you can attend, please visit our website at ctsi.mcw.edu. CTSI Science Cafe is produced by Dr. Oshoya Garrison, co-produced by Brian Belmer. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Doriel Ward and Dr. Reza Shakir. <laughs>